Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to Better Words. This is our intro take two because we had some technical issues. So you're going to get like the second best here because we can't bring ourselves to do it again. We cannot recreate exactly the wonderful discussion we had um, yesterday. Michelle, we had a great chat. We were on this (laughs) recorded part of it, but we're on here for quite a while talking to each other about things. But yeah, this is take two which funnily enough listeners we haven't had to do very often this is a very rare case yeah so touch wood it's it remains a rare issue (laughs) so with that we are just going to dive back into this week's book club which is cultish by amanda montel because i can't even remember what else we talked about so caitlin introduce the book to us okay so Cultish. What makes cults so interesting and frightening? What makes them powerful? The reason why so many of us binge Manson documentaries by the dozen and fall down rabbit holes researching suburban mums gone QAnon is because we're looking for a satisfying explanation for what causes people to join and, more importantly, stay in extreme groups. We secretly want to know, could it happen to me? Amanda Montel's argument is that on some level it already has. Our culture tends to provide pretty flimsy answers to questions of cult influence, mostly having to do with vague talk of brainwashing, but the true answer has nothing to do with freaky mind control, wizardry or Kool-Aid. In Cultish, Montel argues that the key to manufacturing intense ideology, community and us-them attitudes all comes down to language. And this book is fascinating I'm so, so glad that we read it <laughs> I'm so glad I read it and again I'm saying again even though no one has listened to our conversation <laughs> from yesterday but I am not typically someone who is interested in true crime conspiracy theories I don't listen to those podcasts I don't watch those documentaries but you know as a, a reader someone who works with words it's you know, words and language are so fascinating and that was what made this book really interesting. But cults are a tiny bit, like, fascinating. They're still, I'm interested enough. (laughs) Yeah. It's not like I was completely uninterested in even the author's own experiences with, like, Scientology and (laughs) the interviews that she did with people who are part of, like, different cults. And I think that's what makes this book really like compulsively readable I found myself at times like I was like really tired I'm like I'm just going to read one more chapter and I just keep going because it is that it's written in that wonderful non-fiction style that I know we both love that is just having a conversation and it feels really casual and fun but it's like the depth of research is obvious but it doesn't overwhelm you it doesn't feel stuffy and it flows really well. So the book is broken up into a couple of sections. Um, so she talks about traditional cults. Um, 
there's a bit of a discussion as well as like, you know, what makes a cult versus religion versus, you know, movement and stuff like that. And obviously the whole book is looking at how religion differentiates cult cults from like cult beauty brands or cult exercise workouts and stuff like that, because we do throw that word around a lot. And it did make me think how often we talk about things like that or make references to drinking the Kool-Aid and stuff like that. Yeah, that Um, was so interesting. The the overall discussion, obviously, about how that cult language just is in society and it's like when does it get to a point that, like, we don't take it seriously? Like when you joke about, oh, I've totally drunk the Kool-Aid, like (laughs) when you're talking about a a cult brand or something that you're jumping on the bandwagon and it's like, yeah, but, like, lots of people died at Jonestown. (laughs) it yeah. wasn't good <laughs> yeah no it's really fascinating so there's those traditional cults like we said Jonestown Scientology Heaven's Gate Synanon all those sort of scary cults that you hear about um and as you said as well like she talks to people who've been in those cults um and then she sort of talks about the sort of business and multi-level marketing world um exercise and wellness which was really interesting around things like yoga and also soul cycle and peloton and all those sorts of and even cult like the active workouts. wear brands that are like yes. you know you can do it like that sort of stuff yeah, yeah. and crossfit as well um because they really do have like a completely different language which i didn't realize i know um, i don't really know anything about crossfit but i was like oh <laughs> That was, yeah, that was so interesting. It did confirm. I was like, this is not for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I will stick to the cult of dance. Um, and then kind of a chat about conspiracy theories, especially with QAnon and the rise of like, she doesn't really get into anti-vaccine movements and stuff, but it's all sort of, she explains how it's all sort of tied up in QAnon in the way that the internet allows that stuff to sort of be dispelled and language to be dispelled in a different way to say Jonestown. So that was really thought provoking. Definitely. Because it is that, you know, it's one of those wonderful things that people say about the internet is that you can find people with similar interests and, you know, find your own little community and everything. And, you know, hi, Bookstagram. (laughs) Exactly. Bookstagram is totally one of those corners of the internet where, you know, we all talk about books, but it in the same way it is such a tool for you know people to try and become cult leaders and to you know give the wrong information and you know people follow you know even the discussion about like how on Instagram when Instagram first became a thing that you were a follower of someone not like a Facebook friend was like the terminology and I was like oh my god I thought of that. <laughs> like I didn't I don't think about it that way, but yeah. It's such a good point. Yeah. yeah, it's really fascinating and just really interesting to think about the ways that this type of language, which Amanda Montel calls cultish, that's why the book is called that. Um, as we've said before, how it just pervades our everyday life already and how we're so familiar with a lot of the language. Um, I found the way that she explains, um, we had this discussion yesterday and couldn't remember the name of this particular um, sort of 
thought ending terminology sort of thing, but it's a way that cult language like will make statements um, that sort of you can't question or you can't sort of argue with. So mm-hmm. that the whole discussion around that and pulling out those sorts of things when people say like, you know, oh, well, you just didn't manifest it hard enough or you didn't work hard enough or you you mustn't have, you know, been granted whatever blessing. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just pulling stuff out. But it was really interesting to just step back and think about that. And the examples, the real world examples she gives in the book are very fascinating. And I would be I would be very surprised if someone read this and couldn't at least be like see the language around them in some aspect of their life. Absolutely. Because reading it, you know, we both like women have been messaging each other like, oh, this bit and and everything. And and I even reading the introduction of the book where Amanda like mentioned, you know, references, you know, sections of the book like to come about celebrity and health and wellness and everything and I was like I'm walking around listening to this in a Taylor Swift t-shirt and like my act my favorite brand of activewear leggings and I was like ah (laughs) I mean um you know not harmful ones um and that's that's the thing there are kind of cults that are not harmful and she does sort of differentiate when that happens so yeah. yeah, and don't I worry found it if you're in, into Peloton and stuff like that. It's okay. It's it's not a bad cult. <laughs> exactly. There are definitely worse cults than others, and I really did um, like the distinction where she said probably the distinction comes down to like when you want to leave. Mm. Like if you you know if you decide that you know you don't like Soul Cycle classes anymore, what's the worst that's going to happen? Like they're not going to, you know, you're not going to fear for your life or something that you're going to, you know, come back in the next life as a cockroach or something. That was one of yeah. them. Um, you know, you'll just maybe do some yeah. different exercise or go. And to maybe a- you will, maybe you will lose some friends, but it won't be because the cult leaders like told them not to talk to you or any yeah. of that sort of stuff. It'll just like- be because you're not on the same spin class anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So definitely a book that obviously we recommend um we don't really get on here and tell you about books that we don't recommend so I don't know why I use that phrase but um one to get you thinking but it's also quite a fun read and all the examples and stories that she tells are really engaging and I always think that's really important for nonfiction. so yeah yeah, really fun fast but thought-provoking read I, for one, really enjoyed the part. There was a part, I think it was in the fitness section, where she described how during, um, like, first wave of, like, lockdowns in the US, she did an online fitness class, I don't remember which one, with her parents. And her parents both got, like, sick of it very quickly. Um, And she really had tried to just, like, be a bit more open to it. And one of her close friends was like, I know it sounds crazy, but I really like these classes. And... Yeah, like halfway through or something, she was like, oh, my God, I feel it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is, you do get sucked in. And reading the book, I'm like, yeah, you can see how this happens to people. Like getting into some of these like more dangerous um, traditional cults, you know, for lack of a better word. But, 
Yeah, it was so fascinating. And I just remember thinking when I finished it, God, because I... I am one, you know this, Michelle, like if I'm a fan of something, I'm a fan of something. Yeah. I I go all in. I'll like, <laughs> like an actor or a writer or something, I watch everything they've ever created. Yeah, <laughs> I me listen too. to their entire back catalogue if they're a musical artist. I, I'm in. And I was like, could I, like, would I join a cult? Like, I hope not, but... <laughs> I think it definitely comes down to like the actual joining a cult thing definitely seems to come down to um, a little bit around what your personal circumstances are in life. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people seem to be in very difficult personal circumstances. And then there was the whole like sunk cost fallacy where it's like, you might know that it's not really good, but you've sort of spent so much money or time that you're like, yeah, you're like, oh, you can't really back out of this now. And obviously cults, uh, the dangerous kind work to distance you from any other support system outside the cult. So it makes it incredibly difficult to to leave. Um, I feel like we both have um, enough of a healthy disrespect for authority (laughs) to like, we're both, we both follow the rules. Like, but I feel like some things we'd just be like, we're both like a little bit Amy Santiago and that we're like, Oh, rules. But we also would be like, "Mm, no, I'm not buying this. Like, I feel like we're, yeah, I feel like yeah. we're cynical enough to be like, mm, no. I, I think so too. I don't think we'd get sucked into anything too bad. But uh, it is it is very funny. Um, my Aunt Monica always says she loves rules unless they don't make sense. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So if she personally disagrees with a rule, she's like, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was Cultish by Amanda Montel. And... I think we need to say it is actually a HarperCollins book. Yeah. But I I read it through the library because I've actually been waiting for this to be released for ages and I didn't realise it was HarperCollins until I co- told Caitlin I was reading it and she was like, oh, I think we published that. Yeah. So it is a HarperCollins book. Caitlin got a HarperCollins copy. I did not. So, yeah. <laughs> didn't affect um, us at all. We just exactly. wanted to read it. <laughs> I know. I just have wanted to read it for ages. Um, but. Yes, with that in mind, it is now time for our interview. Our guest this week was born in Dorset and now lives in London. She writes fiction and non-fiction for a variety of anthologies, magazines and websites. She's a fiction editor and a contributor to literary journal Minor Literatures and has also worked for Strange Horizons. But her debut novel has just been published. It is called A Strange and Brilliant Light and we are so pleased to welcome you, Ellie Lee, to Better Words. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us some of your time to chat about your debut novel. My pleasure. It's a Monday. It's actually the last day of I've been off on holiday for a week and I've just come back from the Hebrides. So this is a nice easing back into, you know, being back in London, (laughs) daily life, work. Exactly. Yes. Oh, I'm I'm so jealous. That was one of my like bucket list places, which we didn't quite get to. We got as far as Isle of Skye, but yeah, amazing. That's gorgeous. Sky is good though, right? I've heard amazing things about Sky as well. Very beautiful yeah. things about Sky. But yeah, um, the Hebrides is also, if you do ever get a chance, I know you, you're both in Australia, but going to Iona and Mull, it's just 
very remote, very sparsely populated, incredible landscape. It was a real dream to be up there, you know, white sand beaches and medieval oh. monasteries, all the good stuff. Oh my God, it sounds yeah. amazing. It was great. Yeah. Absolute, like absolute dream. But yeah, very lucky, very lucky to get anywhere while we were in England with everything that yes, was going on. But um, yeah, that is my absolute dream to get up there. So one day it will happen. Yes. Um, <laughs> so to start off with, you know, we have to admit that your book is a bit of a departure from what we usually talk about on Better Words, uh, because we're very contemporary readers. But I think the thing that really struck us and what makes it such a great book to discuss on the podcast is the fascinating exploration you have in the book around relationships, family, as well as the more science fiction elements. But even I've seen you describe it as a non-traditional science fiction book. So can you tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write the novel? So I tend to read a very varied diet of fiction. I probably read mostly literary fiction and um, my tendencies go towards wanting to read things about relationships, family, friendships, uh, you know, just romance and stuff. But I've also had a very science fiction-y side my whole life. And, you know, something I just love something about science fiction, speculative fiction has always been there. The two have, you know, they in but in publishing, they seem to occupy quite separate territories. It's quite rare that you find novels that are both science fiction-y and about kind of, you know, the ideas that all of those things can contain and also about relationships and one's inner life and one's heart um so I didn't know what kind of I'd written a few novels before this but when I sat down to write this one it wasn't even to write a novel I was just writing short stories because I had previously written a novel that took me five years and then I just gave up on it one day I was like this isn't working job done oh, no. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but I was like no this isn't really work. this so after that I just need to take a break just write some short stories to give my brain a chance to kind of renew itself and this one started off as a short story all I wanted to write about was two girls who didn't who were best friends who weren't facing a who didn't really have a chance of a future because of automation automation was going to take their jobs away and that was it and I was in California on holiday at the time which is a great place to be writing because I you know it was very unusual because I'm always in London pretty much and when I was there something just unlocked and I just wrote and wrote and wrote when I came back I kept on writing and the first draft was finished very quickly and when I looked at it I thought ah, okay what a surprise this is sci-fi but it's also about relationships friendships matters of heart all that sort of stuff and I I was worried about what genre it was going to end up in but I thought I'm just going to finish it get out there and see what happens so yeah what you have is a hybrid novel in the end (laughs) It, it remains a hybrid yeah yeah, but I mean, it definitely sounds like a case of writing the sort of book that, that you want to read and something that yeah. you are incredibly passionate about and the right idea too. Obviously, like trying to fit into a box isn't working. So the idea came to you and you ran with it. That's amazing. I think it's I think it's definitely worthwhile. I think retrospectively, I probably would have done better to pick my genre and I'm understanding that now. <laughs> like, you know, because sci-fi people have trouble understanding what the novel is and people who read kind of literary or chiclet or rom-com stuff have trouble with the sci-fi aspects. But um, on the other hand, there's also the fact that yeah, I did write exactly what I wanted to write and I was lucky enough to get it published. And I'm incredibly grateful for that because when someone accepts your weird hybrid creature and puts it into the world, you're just like, 
wow, I feel incredibly lucky. So yeah, there was that as well. (laughs) Well, we are going to talk about your publishing journey later, but I guess it's always best to ask the author how they describe their novel and stuff, because I probably won't sum it up right. So can you tell our listeners a bit about, I guess, the overview of what to expect from A Strange and Brilliant Light? So it's about three young women in their 20s. It's set in an alternate universe, very similar to our own. And these women are facing a future where their jobs are very rapidly being taken by AI. So, you know, one of them works in a cafe and of course, like, you know, barista jobs are in the near future, they might well be taken over by, you know, forms of automation. So what are their futures going to be? How are they going to survive in the world? What's the point of having hopes and dreams in a world where you might not get to do what you've always wanted to do? That's the basis of the novel. And then one of them is an AI genius who actually creates the AI. So she has her own kind of complications and story to do with that. Another one, her younger sister, is incredibly ambitious, but feels very put upon and kind of left in the shadows. And so she needs to figure out how she could not only survive, but prove herself to everyone who expects nothing from her anyway. And the third one is her, the younger sister's best friend, who is very politically driven, incredibly socially motivated, and wants the best for everyone, not just, you know, sort of staying alive while everyone else loses their jobs. She wants to make sure that everyone has a fair chance in this new world. So they're all very different characters, and it follows all three of their stories. They are very different. It's so interesting that, you know, they all know each other and they're so closely related in such, and experiencing this, you know, change in very different ways. Um, But since you said it started out with two characters, I'm a bit curious as to which pair it was like was it the sisters or was it the friends it was um it was the friends it was Lal and Rose and that was based it was based on essentially um my best friend and I she's she's very Rose-esque she's very political she's an activist she's incredible and I'm sort of more of a sit at home watch tv like my creature comforts kind of person who would probably just the first thing I would do is look out for myself in a situation like that and I just thought of the two of us facing a situation where our futures were at risk and the automation thing wasn't something I was like it wasn't really about that it was more about me and Kieran my my best friend my oldest friend um how we would face a situation where our lives were at risk I honestly started writing the story out of a sort of homage to her and then from that it just kind of grew and grew that's so nice yeah I did look at Rose and think like she she was amazing and I did sort of wonder like who would I be more like? Like, would I be going along with everything? I know. Would, I or would you be standing up? Yeah. For it? I don't know. Mm. I feel like I'd probably just go along with everything as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was really, it was really interesting. And I guess that's the thing is like, you know, we, even though we don't read much science fiction or fantasy for that matter as well, like we both appreciate a really amazing character driven novel. And I think that's the thing is, um, even if you don't, usually read this sort of stuff this is such an interesting book because it does bring up so many of those questions and these three women really are at the heart of it as well and that makes it no different to any other sort of literary relationship driven novel so yeah about three women who are best friends and sisters Mm -hmm. and stuff like there are hundreds and millions of books about exactly out there (laughs) yeah it's a very potent, I actually just finished reading, I don't know whether you guys have read Claire Lombardo's The Most Fun We Ever Had. I finished that last night. It came out fairly recently, I think, and it's about four sisters. And as I was reading it, I was reminded of, like, I don't have sisters, I have two brothers, but um, female friendships and sisterhood, there's so much 
in there that's so juicy like you know with my one Lal is so jealous of her older sister Janetta she's just consumed with jealousy and she also feels disapproved of by her best friend which I'm sure is something we all have experienced or maybe we've been the disapproving best friend so you know it was a really good kind of juicy topic to get into. What I found interesting though is you know we're in this alternate world where Mm. artificial intelligence is so abundant and in some ways you know society seems more advanced but then obviously despite that we still have some of those same class struggles and sexism especially when it comes to Rose's storyline and like the powerful men around her why did you want to explore those things in this context rather than you know creating some utopian society where we've figured it all out yeah I mean I knew that I that I always end up writing about relationships and power dynamics and relationships. It's something I'm drawn to a lot. And I'm also very aware of in the UK, there's because of my friend, just because of having been here for so long, I'm aware of UK politics amongst, you know, my generation and the, you know, although I'm kind of my friends and I are all broadly on the left, I know about the internal struggles and I'm sure it's the same on the right but we all have you know there are people I wanted to talk about the individuals and how individuals have their relationships within things and so I knew that it wasn't going to be utopia because okay for example one of my favorite novelists is Ursula Le Guin who is a science fiction novelist through and through she's incredible and she wrote a novel called The Dispossessed I don't know if you guys have read it but it's absolutely wonderful and it's about an anarchist utopia except she calls it the subtitle is an ambiguous utopia and her point is that you can never write anything that's truly perfect there's always people have their own agendas there's always different motivations going on life is inherently imperfect so with this one I knew that there were going to be lots of you know even if people had great political aspirations within the bubble of great political aspirations you're always going to get snakes in the grass you're going to get troublemakers you're going to get especially Rose is a very pure driven person but she's not that confident yet and when you're not that confident and you're young and female you can be vulnerable and I wanted her to work out who she was and how she could become strong but in order to do that she had to start off vulnerable and you know porous and up for being taken advantage of or not having her chance in the spotlight like she should have. I think my favourite scenes were when she goes to the library at the university and starts researching everything for herself and you just (laughs) you you do see her sort of or you experience her um, starting to step into her own opinions and Mm. her own things and sort of you know standing up against various men in her life because there's her brother her father and this man who leads this group um, sort of against automation and they all have very different ideas about how things should should be done and I guess throughout the story we see her testing out various does she believe this does she believe this and slowly coming into her own and I think that's probably my favorite thing is I think there's even a a line where you sort of say that she sort of looks around and she wants to discuss it with the other students because she feels like she's had this light bulb moment and I feel like we've always all been there at some point where we feel so passionate about something that we're like I mean some of us start podcasts (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, yeah, Um, exactly exactly. yeah the kind of moments where you're like does everyone know about this I have to tell everyone exactly (laughs) you know you really want and also I think when I don't know about either of you, but I've definitely spent quite a lot of my life feeling as though um, are my opinions like, I, you know, are they OK? Am I allowed to really think what I think or am I just being stupid? Because I don't know, maybe it's a female thing or but Rose was is surrounded by very strongly opinionated men. I mean, literally surrounded by them. everywhere she looks. There's a guy who is, as you said, you know, has such strength of opinion and. So I think, you know, I haven't been in that situation myself, but I think there is a certain thing. And I'm sure and I know that it can happen across you know, whoever you are. The idea that you can't really own or value your own opinions until you really decide that, you know what, 
I'm going to do it. And it takes a while for some people, I think. And so Rose was, that was her situation. I think a lot of people will relate to that as well, because we all have like, you know, you have to like learn about different things so that you can form proper opinions on them. And that's, you know, education is so important is to learn about all these issues so that you have, can make an educated decision. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and also trust yourself rather than trusting the people who have told you what to think your whole life. Yeah. And I do feel like and, uh, we all have that moment where we, you know, we grow up sort of believing what our parents believe just because it is. And then you yes. do get to a certain point in adulthood where you maybe start to have different opinions about things and you're like, oh my God, I'm my own person and yeah. I don't agree with them on this, but that's okay. Like, it's, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is freeing. And I think that that storyline in particular was really, it was great to watch her step into that, even though it meant that she might have a bit of friction with her best friend. I loved watching watching her grow in that way. Yeah, I was proud of her because in the first draft, she was actually much more um, with the group leader, Alec, the guy who was kind of anti-Ort. And he was actually, obviously, he's only out, well, it, obviously, if you read the book, he's only out for himself, really. And he has these this kind of sheen of being socially motivated. But he actually just wants to be kind of famous. And in the first draft, Rose was much more taken in by him. And she just thought he was really hot. And, you know, she just kind of... We've all been there. Oh, we've <laughs> Very been relatable. There. Yes, we've all been there. And... Um, yeah. And I realised that, you know, Janetta is also quite taken in by Tali, obviously very taken in by Tali because she falls for her. This, you know, the older sister, the AI genius, is in a much more desperate situation because she's just been through a breakup and she's very, like, extraordinarily vulnerable. But I didn't want Rose to have the same vulnerability. When I looked at that draft, I thought, no, she deserves to see through this guy ASAP. So there was a lot of character changing and I felt like I'd done her right when I made her clock this guy, Alec, much sooner than she did in the first draft she saw through those looks <laughs> yes. she was out the um, door <laughs> um just briefly like I know you mentioned that you know your best friend inspired this has she read this book and what did you think yeah she has she has read it um she really really loves it she's quite a recalcitrant person so she wouldn't say much about it but I think she feels like incredibly honored that I wrote a book that's um, because she's one of my oldest friends and our lives have diverged so much. I mean, she really is like, without giving too many details, because a lot of stuff she does is quite like underground. She does incredible political activism and I do just sit on my sofa and watch TV. And there was, you know, there was in our 20s, there was this kind of, we had this schism where she was looking at me like, you're just going to be a writer. Oh, I see. And I was thinking, I was thinking she's doing really good stuff. So I think she, I wanted her to realise that, I respect so much what she does because it is incredible. And I think she is like, you know, she and I would probably both have a good old cry out of sheer being touched by, you know, how we've responded to each other's choices in the end with what she's doing and me writing a book about her. So yeah, it's getting a bit teary, but yes. Oh my God. (laughs) It's so nice. There's nothing quite like, yeah, really like a really good friendship and like a really old Mm -hmm. friend. I would love to compare us, Michelle, but we haven't actually known it. Like we've only been friends for five years. We've done this podcast for four years. But yeah. we've got plenty of years left to go. So yeah. that's a good yeah. amount of time. What you need to do to get the you know the inciting incident is that one of you two needs to do something radically different and unexpected. And then like <laughs> ten years down the line, you have to kind of see how things have blossomed since then. Yeah. That's, so that's far, a story. Everything's that's a story. pretty much on track. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah. what it's we pretty... expected of each yeah. other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> hopefully one day soon we can live closer to each other and actually get to see each other in person yeah but... that would also be nice yeah um <laughs> how did you guys meet we met um actually when we were both in the cast of a community musical okay that's a good and unexpected answer yeah <laughs> I'd done musicals for years in high school and stuff and then Michelle didn't you do it and someone told you to join to like make friends it worked yeah it worked but also like this (laughs) is like one of I mean the group of friends that I made with Caitlin is probably like one of my only group of friends um until I moved overseas that wasn't like Mm. connected to work or connected to uni you know like when you're an adult you don't make friends friends. yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, it gets so much harder Yeah. yeah And even well, then, like, all my overseas friends I know through, like, doing freelance work. So they feel like yeah. colleague. Work friends, kind friends. of. Yeah. 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 So it is it is funny. But, yeah, then we found out that we only live down the road from each other. So, yeah, we just sort of got to know each other with that. And and then we found out we read similar books and yeah. that was it. It's just spiraled from there, really. Yeah. <laughs> Success yeah. story. That's yeah. a great story. That's really good. That's kind of like, you know, a proper solid yeah I know what you mean about it's hard to make friends once you're out of uni basically and you're kind of in the work world so that's a lovely story that's a kind of proof to us it can be done we did okay um (laughs) now now obviously as we were just talking about Ellie these you know amazing women and their relationships and everything but Michelle did mention that this world is not technically our own that they live Mm. in why do it in like this whole other world rather than say setting the book in the future is it just so that you didn't want to pick a time you know like a 1984 <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, right yeah there was this there was this whole thing during the whole writing of it and then the process with my editor where no one had asked me to specify exactly when it was set and I was so grateful because I was just like I think it's like seven years in the future but I can't say for sure because isn't that terrifying like I know right yeah it's it's sped up so sometimes I sometimes I would be like it's 15 years in the future other times I'd be like it's eight years so I didn't want to give it the reason why it helped to set it in alternate universe was because that was a slight get out so things could be more sped up there and I could say well you know this universe is slightly ahead of our own and that helped me not have to specify what I would otherwise have to do if it was set in a real world context because I mean in in the real world how much is automation going to affect us in the next 10, 15, 20 years. If you look at some AI theorists, they're like, oh, we're all just going to be out of a job in the next 10 years. Even us three will be sitting here, it'll be bots talking to a bot and, you know, <laughs> um, and, or whatever. So, and then others are just going to say, well, within 20, 30 years, you'll see major changes. So I didn't feel capable of writing a, a sort of a further future novel because my brain isn't that way inclined. And it would have been really hard work for me to be like, oh, so what do they do if they're not going to email each other? I'm not really, I'm interested in other writers doing that, but I can't do that. That's not my skill set. So I needed to remove myself from having to do that. So that was hence the the thing that gave me the ability to set it in a kind of like undefined semi-future in another similar worlds I think I really like that though because like books where it's like it's our world and it's the future you know like after the climate apocalypse or you know all these things it makes me sad if it's like another world then I'm like oh it's fine it's happening to them not us yeah Yeah. (laughs) fine yeah don't worry it's not gonna happen here um I have to make the alternate universe thing people have asked me about why I did that and there's no reason it just came out like that and it turned out to cause an awful lot of trouble when it was on submission and also uh, when it was being marketed and just it, so I would really advise anyone not to set alternate not to set things alternate universes because it confuses a lot of people um but unfortunately I actually wrote a whole draft like in 
our world because that's what I was asked to do that at one point and when I submitted that draft all of us were just like it's kind of a million times better back in the alternate universe we're gonna go back to that yeah to just go yeah. back oh my just, gosh yeah yeah just undo all of that work yeah yeah um, I mean it was kind of like you know places were just suddenly called London <laughs> yeah oh, that was hard that was, yeah yeah that's so tricky um mm. and what about the actual world building itself because and we don't get to ask many people this question because we often speak to sort of contemporary writers and stuff but right down to things like the food and everything it does even though it feels like our world and at times you're like yeah well they email or they get things off the internet and stuff and then you know you'll have these other passages where I'm like oh oh it is another world like those like little moments where you're like oh so how do you go about building that well I think the probably the reason why I did another another world it was a very very idiosyncratic reason which is that I've got like all of us I've got this huge storehouse of memories from places I've been in my life and I wanted to create and I knew kind of unconsciously when I started very quickly writing first half this novel that I wanted it to be a sort of I wanted it to give shape to the storehouse of memories that I've got and the only way to do that seemed to be to create a universe to create a world so so much stuff in that world I could say okay that's a road in San this is a street in San Francisco or like this is because my dad lived in Thailand for a long time so I used to visit him in Thailand so you know certain things are based on visiting my dad in Thailand other things are based on Edinburgh they're based on London and it's it's kind of it was really and I know this is not something that anyone should say if you're publishing something about the reader but it was the alternate universe was for me so when I read the book when I was older or just when I read the book I was like oh this is like kind of a secret diary of so many aspects of my life and no other reader will ever know this but for me it's just like oh yeah so that you can go oh that reminds me of visiting my dad in Thailand yeah 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 and like you know tiny things like that was that morning at that person's house and oh so once again not the best marketing strategy but like really fun for me so yes (laughs) that's what it was I I mean that's what everyone does is like pulls things from all over their life so yeah I've been thinking a lot about like memory and stuff lately um, and, you know, remembering certain things. And it is sometimes those really mundane things that actually do mean the most to you. And I love the idea of like hiding them in a novel where, you know, to other people it's just like a normal thing. But you can go back and revisit that later in 20 years or, you know, tell your family or, you know, I I love Mm -hmm. that. That's so cool. It's kind of, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, that's a very... that. Obviously, it must. I know it comes across completely differently to readers. And often I just read it. And when I read it, so often I'm now looking for like bits to cringe at or proofing mistakes. <laughs> no, well, that sort of but um, there, there are times, especially when I got really fed up with it, because I had to look at it so many times when I thought, mm-hmm. OK, just remember, where did that scene come from? And there'd be a scene that came from. I mean, lots of scenes were from my imagination, obviously, but there were some scenes that I could be like, oh, that's when I was at so-and-so's house and we'd have that great party. And, and you know, just that secret memory helped me care about the scene again and love it. So I'm sure all writers have that, but it's sort of, I think with the alternate universe, it just was my brain's strange way of giving all the shape. I really like that. <laughs> Thank you. I probably won't do it again because it's very hard to do an alternate universe, I think. Yeah, and yeah, sure it yeah, is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my brain is now like, now you're going to write something set in the real world. And I'm happier with, I'm happier with that this time. Um, So as we were discussing before as well, there are a lot of, you know, political and philosophical questions raised in the book. You know, plus you delve into some of those more scientific discussions around AI. Um, How much research did you have to do while writing? Because you do bring a lot of depth to that discussion. 
Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, quite quite a lot. I mean, I think I knew about some of that stuff already. I'd done a master's degree in political theory, which was very unlike me, oh. and I don't quite know why I did it. But that degree helped me think about democracy, about rights, um, responsibilities, citizenship, things like that, and fair, you know, fairness and equality. So I was already kind of fairly well versed in that stuff, and that was a long time ago. So I've always had this kind of political theoretical side bubbling away beneath um, my love of rom coms and chocolate and you know sort of lesser things. <laughs> And um, so when it came to the AI stuff, I also knew quite a bit about AI just because it's always fascinated me. I think the mythology of AI is very intriguing. And if you watch, I don't know, like I, I really, really love writers like Philip K. Dick, who writes a lot about, you know, the science fiction writer, writes a lot about forms of artificial intelligence with Blade Runner, the film based on his book, The Android Stream of Electric Sheep. You know, that kind of thing just had a major influence on me. So the fictional... Um, sort of fictional discourse around AI has been in my head for decades so when it came to writing this I had all you know you I had a long lineage of people who've written about AI or androids or cyborgs behind me to work from so there was that and in terms of actual AI that I did do quite a lot of reading and research to make sure I wasn't writing absolute rubbish and a very close friend of mine works for an AI company so everything's were really wow. tricky I would just say like, send him bits of my novel he would say you can't write that that's insane it's like not anywhere realistic so he would help me um figure out what you know the algorithms and the actual kind of programming aspect of what I could do and that was really helpful because so much of it is there are parts of the novel that need to be about the technicalities of AI and obviously you have artistic license when you're writing a novel but you're you can't also just say what I was saying at first which was frankly like I was pulling some out of the air I was like then they wave their magic wands and boom, 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 and it AI works. was done <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I was doing and he was just like hey, no you've got to have some sense of reality so yeah it was a mix between all those things and that's how I got to all that stuff because one of the central things that they're also grappling with is this idea of conscious AI and actually Janetta is working on emotional intelligence for AI as well yeah I guess that's something you know people people say based on movies and everything of like oh my god the robots are going to take over our jobs but that is what they're dealing with at this point in this society as well so yeah definitely can't just like make stuff up um exactly and the the thing wasn't going to be about conscious AI when I started I just wanted to explore two girls with no future that was it and then as I went along this thing happened where I realised, because I've never written science fiction before, although no, one of my previous novels was speculative, like the ones that got put, the one that got put in the drawer. I realised that you actually kind of need to go there. And I think it's a top tip for writing in any genre. If you think that you need to go there with a the subject and you have, you have an inkling that you're going to need to push it as far as possible, unless you're trying to create this kind of like where nothing happens novel, I think you need to explore that and go there. And so about halfway through writing this novel, I just thought, oh... If I'm writing about automation and AI, I'm going to need to go to the big AI place, which is conscious AI, because that's the... I don't know, have you guys seen the film Her with Joaquin Phoenix? I haven't, actually. It's I've kind good. of... It's always been on the list, you know, and I just haven't watched it. But I've heard so many good things. It'd be so interesting. Her is a quiet film. Um, like, my novel's a quiet book, but it does deal with themes of conscious AI, and I think it does that in a very clever way and so I was influenced by that a lot when I was writing the kind of quietness of consciousness AI dawning on us um at the end of my novel as well that was the way I wanted to do it was in a sort of creeping subtle you wake you wake up one day and everything's changed as opposed to a kind of big 
dramatic thing which is what is running around in my mind which is the example of um avengers age of ultron where all of a sudden they wrote the program and then bam it clicks and he just like scraps together some metal and runs through it i was thinking of and please don't be offended by this comparison but i was thinking of mitchell's versus the machines which is that <laughs> Okay, it's, a kid's Look, movie. it's fun. Oh, it's okay, a kids okay. movie. It's mm-hmm. really, really fun, but it's sort of like a big swipe at Amazon too, um, oh, because okay. the whole the whole thing is like uh, this tech guru guy gets up and he's like, "We've created robots to do everything for you! Yay, great!" Um, and he's basically programmed them, and then the robots revolt, and the Mitchell family are on this family vacation, and they get caught up in the robots taking over the world and they have to save everybody but it's that at that point where I think like there's a scene in a shopping center where you know there's this commentary on like the fact that everything is like a smart thing now so all the machines have come to life and there's like washing machines chasing them and fridges and toasters and because everything has a smart chip that's owned by this one company which I think is also why I thought of it because it was kind of like the techno company in, in your book as well, where I was like, ooh, big corporation owns everything, which is something that Rose talks about as well, this idea of who owns all the, the information. Um, and I guess we are sort of grappling with that in a little way, in yeah. some small way with Amazon and stuff. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It's silly. It's fun. I'm going to watch it. I just think it's so funny that these are two – like these are two examples of like you know AI and movies and everything and people think it's you know funny in a kids movie or, or like it's so extreme in Avengers. So what happens in Avengers? Because I haven't seen that one. So oh, so it can't say I at the end of that. Yeah, so they create like the program. There's actually already conscious AI <laughs> that Iron Man has, and yeah. they write like a different program, and it like kills the other one and then takes over the building like over the internet and everything like that and I mean eventually like you know he builds himself a body because he can control everything I don't know I mean it's a superhero movie like I'm not explaining it well (laughs) no I'm gonna watch that too because I think think it's the like the um, the so the kind of we have this collective imaginary about AI which my novel and the Avengers one and this one I've just written down Mitchell versus the machines clearly all stem from and add to and take part in that collective imaginary about AI and it is um it's huge and it's so I think it's really fun you know both what you've described both of those just sound really fun and even if AI does come and eventually crush us at the moment in terms of fiction and you know film and tv it's a lot of fun to play around with it definitely is and I think it's good to explore these extremes in fiction Mm. and in movies and everything so that hopefully we don't get to that point Yeah, exactly. Something that I loved in your novel as well is the idea of um, the animal orts as well and the sort of the way that that it's it's sort of a small part of the storyline, but interesting Mm. to hear about like the birds that can and you can control the chirping and things like that. I was just fascinated by that idea as well and the animals and I guess like uh, not, not breeding because it's it's AI, but like removing some of those things and sort of toning down some of those unlikable qualities about certain animals to sort of tame them a bit more in this way. It was just a really interesting discussion. I mean, honestly, your book made me think 
so much about so many different things and I love it when a novel does that (laughs) thank you oh thanks very much it's some people have um said or I've heard like oh it's like a cerebral or an intellectual novel and I just think well yeah I've covered some political ideas and some ideas about AI but there's also lots there that's just kind of I think quite fun hopefully I think I wanted you know I knew that because my mum's always wanted me to just write straight chick lit. She really has just wanted me to write straight chick lit. Like you've never, like every book, she's just like, Ellie, whenever I'm starting, just like, write a chick lit novel. And I did try writing a chick lit novel. I ended up having one of the characters go off on like this Marxist rant. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, so it seems that... If it's I'm not just gonna, for you, it's not for you. <laughs> yeah. It seems yeah. like if I'm just going to bring a few ideas into it, that's okay. That's fine. And I'm really, I'm really glad that you appreciate them as well. Because it's, um with that particular one about the animals, I just love the idea of um the artifice of ai which is kind of like the you know extreme of artifice and then if you think about you know animals and nature animals are the most part of nature and that kind yeah. of collision between the artificial and the natural and when the artificial start taking over the natural to me that's very dystopian so yeah. that's really why i was interested in that as an idea as a kind of aside in the book um and actually the we'd love to just talk briefly about the cover as well because there is sort of a representation of that on the cover. So can you tell us, like, can you explain to our listeners what the cover looks like? And also, yeah, who did this amazing illustration? It's beautiful. So the cover, I know they can't see it. I'm going to hold it up to you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it's it's, um, a robot hand or an ought hand, as I know in the novel, A-U-T. And the ought hand is holding this little AI bird. And you know it's an AI bird. Well, one would know it's an AI bird. If you stare at the eye, it's kind of got a weird mechanical eye. And so although it looks very natural, it's one of the AI birds described in the novel, which looks like it's uh, just a nice little bird sitting on a tree outside your house. But inside the eye is actually a security camera there. It's far kind of more evil and dystopian, this little bird. And it was a lucky thing with the cover that when I found out I got the book deal, I was in Paris with a couple of friends. We were actually at a conference about the science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin, who I mentioned earlier. And one of my friends I was with there is called Sin. She is a fantastic illustrator. And I turned to her pretty much an hour after I found out about the book deal. And I said, you'll do the cover, right? And she said, yeah. So and then I, you know, I didn't think about what the editor would say or the marketing team would say. Was like, yeah, yeah were they cool with that? <laughs> They were, they were, they were cool with it. Yeah. Um, it took a bit of like, kind of, I had to do the, you know, do the little bit of hustle about it, but, um, it was, yeah, it worked out and it, you know, it got nominated for a British science fiction award for best cover. And it's just very beautiful and very unique. I think whenever I look at it, I'm just like, you know, I think the illustration is absolutely gorgeous. And so yeah, I would love to work with her again. I think she's a very good illustrator. If you look, at the the actual kind of the sketches that she did for it where you can see up close the artwork it's just so gorgeous and that this almost doesn't do it justice because you have to look at the sketches and every kind of you I know you can't see it but the the feathers on the bird every little detail is completely gorgeous and it still transfixes me I kind of wish that you know (laughs) but yeah it's uh, forget the title but yeah it's great so I'm really happy with it it is such a beautiful, um, simple and striking cover, but you're right, there's so much detail in there and it is so cool. How nice to have another friend involved as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, quite good. I'm quite good at getting friends involved in things. That's one of my favourite things to do is just kind of <laughs> hook people up. 
I it love makes that. everything much sure, more fun. I'm sure your publisher is um, happy that it worked out after you said, hey, my friend will design it. I'm sure they don't <laughs> like hearing that very often. Yeah. I'm sure like, oh, great, another one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I'd worked at a publisher. Like I, I used to work at um, a sort of me- one of those medium-sized publishers for a while as an editor. So I knew about the process of covers and how intense it was and how the sales team put in, you know, publicity team are so involved. And, of course, how the art um, and design team need to do their own thing as well and I knew that by saying that I was just steamrolling over a whole load of things that need to happen <laughs> but I thought try, try my luck try my luck and it worked out which was try good luck. Be like, yeah, yeah just freelance this happen. one out right. to my friend exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly so, yeah. I wouldn't recommend it but it worked out for us which brings me perfectly to my absolute favorite question to ask on our podcast so tell us about your publishing journey. How did this go from manuscript to book deal and now on shelves? Um, available to purchase now. Yeah. <laughs> um, just follow the links in the podcast. Um, so I always wanted to be a writer and I studied English at university, which I think is both a brilliant way to learn how to be a writer and also very intimidating because by the end of it, I was convinced I would never be as good as Jane Austen or Chaucer or George Eliot. And I just... <laughs> Yeah. didn't write for a long time because I had I think it had kind of stolen my confidence on some level mm. um which was a strange effect because there are other people who graduated um some actually famous novelists in my year and the year below me who I won't mention but you know at the same university That's straight cool. out of starting, starting gate were just ready to go and I think it was quite an unlucky thing that I sort of felt denuded of confidence as opposed to full of confidence but that's just the way it was so it took me a while and I did still after I did my political theory master's I thought, why did I do that? I just want to write. That's like, I don't want to be an academic. And so I started writing novels and I wrote actually three novels, which I'd never sent off to even an agent. I just practiced and practiced and put them in drawers after they were done. Two of them were kind of rom-coms and the third was a speculative science fiction one that I spent five years on. And after that one, everyone around me was just like, Ellie, time is ticking come on what are you doing because I've always had jobs during this time but um so the next one I wrote after that I thought well I want to get this one published because I know that I'm good enough and I also know that I spent a lot of time putting things in drawers and not putting myself out there and yeah this was the first offer was incredibly quick to write I had a job and it was incredibly busy job very intense so I would write this it was just nothing I'd ever experienced before usually writing takes place I don't know if either of you guys are writers but it was always you know a little bit laborious in the evenings after work and this one I would get up super early and I would just every day write until the first draft was finished and it felt like something had changed completely little did I know how many more drafts we'd have to go through to get to the end of it but um after that I wrote a few more drafts and then the most kind of the most reassuring thing that happened fairly soon afterwards was that I've got a friend who is an agent which is not what people want to hear but um I sent it to him and he was like I love it and he hooked me up with one of his agents who I didn't actually end up going with because um I found an agent that I preferred who ended up being my agent so it was a mix of nepotism and also cold calling and (laughs) I had um like some agents who cold calling were just completely disinterested um, one asked for the full manuscript and then said it's like too sci-fi for me and I was like it's not sci-fi and um, the third one was a kind of part nepotism the one I went with was part a friend was another agent in that agency's client and she said oh I'll send it to him if he knows he want and she randomly got it and would just she has such a good vision for the second draft that I signed with her and um, after that we went through a lot more drafts 
and then we put it on submission and I was a bit concerned because I understood at that point I'd written a novel that fell squarely between sci-fi and literary and I like it was hard on submission because a lot of publishers got back to us saying we really like it well so many sci-fi ones got back to us saying we really like it but it's too literary for us and so many literary ones got back to us saying we really like it but it's too sci-fi for us and I did cry a couple of times because Mm, I just yeah I realized I'd snookered myself with just following my heart and that was and when there was one literary publisher in particular that I would have, you know, they, they was, we were almost there. And then the marketing team came back and said, we can't market something that's set in an alternate universe. So although everyone else loves it. <laughs> so I was, I felt like when Joe. It's jo- so when, hard because, you know, so you get told to write what you love. And, mm. you know, clearly, like you said, even the shift of trudging through a draft versus getting up and wanting to write and feeling like this was your story to tell. But then we always forget as readers as well, because we, you know, we love reading and you know we sort of forget that publishing is an industry and I guess like you know Caitlin works in publishing as well but like it's so easy to forget that actually like it's about the marketing someone's got to decide if they think it's a product that they can sell and yeah exactly and it was very it was I I don't know why I was naive because I'd worked in publishing too but there was something I think just kind of stubborn about me when I was writing it I needed that stubbornness to get it done and then facing the realities of literary publishers especially saying this is too sci-fi was heartbreaking because (laughs) I I I felt like it wasn't but the very fact that I included robots was just like we're not gonna deal with this um what Caitlin what do you do what's your are you in public are you in publicity and I'm sorry for so much slagging no no don't be no I am in the marketing team but um you're right it's it is like I can see where they're coming from. It's, you know, it's a bit tricky to yeah. understand, particularly, you know, at that acquisition stage where you're like, yeah. where, where someone probably read it and was like, literary fiction, but about robots? What? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, exactly. Yeah. It's all, I guess at that stage, it's all literally just comes down to numbers like a business decision as well. Yeah, it like, totally does. How, yeah. How much money can we make back on this? Like, it's Absolutely. not like Like, you, you can't. <laughs> whatever you want publish quickly right yeah yeah younger I know right and uh yeah Caitlin if you're actually 45 years old and you just look really young then we know that this is actually younger but um (laughs) um but of course if you're Kazuo Ishiguro who has a novel about robots being published by Faber with Clara and the Sun you don't need to worry about that because you have just won the Nobel Prize um but I I think now looking back and if I offered advice to other writers I would, would think of course write what you want to write but also just think a little bit about genre before you do it because it was that was a it has proved to be tricky I was very lucky that Joe Fletcher books um saw the potential in the novel and they loved it and they embraced me and they embraced the novel exactly as it was that was amazing although they're a sci-fi publisher I felt lucky I think Joe and Molly who was the assistant editor at the time had the broadness of vision to be like well this is also about relationships and love and stuff but we're good with that they just published this is how you lose the time war um which was a very successful uh novella that they put out and it was about love and relationships as well as being very sci-fi and I think that caught something in readers hearts I think 
the Joe Fletcher books had the appetite for you know broadening their remit. So I was lucky in terms of timing. And then I think I was lucky that the whole Quirkus team were also very accepting and welcoming as well. So it worked out in the end. And I think I found the right publisher for it. But it was it was a journey. It was a journey. Oh, yeah. definitely. And like, it's, you know, I feel a bit bad that we've been saying, oh, you know, like, oh, where would it fit? And like, oh, it's two genres and everything. But books do find their home and where they're supposed to be. And the people who believe in them are the ones who will do a good job when publishing them and you know being your agent and all of those things and you know as you just said like there are more and more examples of these like mixed genres and you know blended stories and like all these things and people are reading probably more widely than they ever have you know people aren't just reading their favorite genre anymore they're kind of doing bits and pieces all around so I mean, as Michelle and I said at the start, we're not big sci-fi or fantasy readers, but we do love books that have this kind of splash of it. You know, it's like a taste for us. It's like, oh, is this why people like sci-fi? Yeah. <laughs> I like yeah. this. Yeah. Robots aside, there's really interesting discussions here about power and family dynamics and what happens when friendships diverge slightly. You know, there's amazing things happening there. Yeah, I think it's with sci-fi, you don't often, often sci-fi is very plot-led and I don't read that much plot-led sci-fi because I find it hard when you can't invest in characters and you can't mm. really take those characters into your heart. Even if they're dislikable, I still find myself fascinated by dislikable characters. And so there's so much sci-fi, which is just thrills and spills and like, you know, military war and space. And that's great for the people who want that. I love it for them. You guys enjoy that. But for me, if the characters there aren't really described, if their inner lives aren't described in detail, I'm not interested. So some of my favourite writers are Alice Munro, if you guys have read this Nobel Prize winner, I've got one of her books there. Um, she's just this incredible short story writer. She's in her 80s now. She's Canadian. She just writes about small town in Ontario, where she's from. And it's all about her characters in their lives and their small domestic worlds. Um, and another one of my favourite writers is Eleanor Ferrante. If you've read mm-hmm. the Neapolitan Quartet, it's just wonderful a total masterpiece. So I think that there is room for, if you want to write character-led stuff, you need to be able to think well okay if I'm going to do a plot I want the characters to have kind of deep inner lives as well and how do I have a kind of an interesting plot where things happen like big things happen but how do I also give the characters space to find out who they are and go on their own journeys so I think that's that's the thing that is you have to balance if you want to write character-driven sci-fi which is um you know Margaret Atwood does it amazingly in Oryx and Crake and that Bad Adam series and in Handmaid's Tale she's like a master at so I think there is tons of space for it. I think it's just also a different balance to if you're doing a novel that's just kicked off purely by someone's emotions and it's just, there aren't any big things happening like conscious AI or automation. You know, yeah. It's just kind of someone's someone's dad dies or someone's dog dies or, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a very different form of writing. And I think in the future, I'm interested in writing something where these aren't there aren't so many external factors leading the character's emotions and decisions. I'd rather do something that's a bit more kind of based on what comes from their heart and you know of course it'll have to be in response to an event because you always need an inciting incident of course but um yeah sort of more close to home things I think I'm curious about next so are you working on anything at the moment yes I am um kind of working on three things and then we'll see which one makes it to the end the first one is kind of like a memoir although I don't like saying memoir because I feel that I haven't really lived long enough to write a memoir but there are there have been interesting things happening 
um, over the past couple of years to do with babies and fertility and stuff like that. And I know that that's a very popular um, area of nonfiction at the moment, but I, I'm just writing down things as they're happening in order to, and maybe it'll turn into nothing, but it's kind of like a cathartic exercise. So that's one thing. Um, and it's also the easiest to do because life happens and you go home and write about it. And that's just, you know, it's really, like, really this like, is what's happened to me. I know what's yeah. happened. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and there's a wonderful book it's kind of based on called The Folded Clock by a writer called Heidi Gillivitz, who isn't that well known in the UK. Um, she's an American writer and she wrote, if you ever want to read a really fun diary written by someone, The Folded Clock is a really fun diary. Every day she just says, today I found a bowl in an antiques shop. And then she just goes on this like crazy story about either her past or something that leads her to and it's so I love the randomness of it but the and the idiosyncrasy of it but also it's very it was very touching and moving as a memoir because they all kind of coalesced around what was going on in her life at the time and it's also really light and funny um I'm also writing a rom-com because it was inevitable because I do that's my favorite sort of like genre of movie and tv show so it's been trying to get out of me for a while so I'm doing that and that's fun um, and then I'm also writing something that is kind of lightly fan- speculative fantasy and just seeing whether that works and whether that muscle is still up for being squeezed as much as it was in the past <laughs> few years. Um, yeah. It's it's harder than the others, but I know that um, that is an avenue that's open to me because of this first novel. So I, you know, so I'm just trying with all three, seeing what comes to me most naturally. I can't believe you can write like three very different things all at the same time, that you can just fit all of that into your brain. That's crazy. Um, I think, well, the memoir one is really, is. I shouldn't say this in case it gets published, but it's pretty, as I said, it is easy to do because that's just like a diary. And then the other two, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of one week I might just focus on one or two weeks I'll just focus on one and then I'll like, not do anything for a few days and then I'll go back to the other one and have intense bursts of the other one but my brain is quite divergent in terms of genre anyway so this is quite a nice way of feeding kind of the divergent genres yeah. I think do you read mm-hmm. multiple books at once as well yeah I do but yeah yeah, of course. yeah do you guys do you guys do that are you, are you I do yeah. yeah and we sort of have to be for this podcast anyway <laughs> like because we will start and stop I mean I will anyway I don't know yeah. about you, but I will start and stop um based on went well so we had to reschedule this interview yes. and I had mm-hmm. started the book and then I had to stop pick up another one that we had before in this between, interview and just yeah. had to like yeah and we so have another interview on switching. Wednesday I've almost finished that book too like yeah but I mean, I mean I do that anyway because I am a total mood reader so I could yes, be in the middle exactly. of a book that I'm loving and just think oh, I really feel like some I, I feel like a rom-com today I just want mm-hmm. you know if you're feeling yeah. upset or something and you're like I just want a really cozy it's like putting on a movie and you're like I just Absolutely. want yeah and then like but I think the key for me and clearly you're doing this with your writing as well is they're all very different genres I love the description mood reader because that's exactly what it is and yeah it's you're absolutely right it's the same with watching tv or watching a movie and yeah I currently have about five books I'm halfway through and you know when you're going off on if you're so when I went up to the Hebrides last week there was a sort of okay what what are the books that are going to work with being on a remote island yeah. off the coast of Scotland? And I had to really think about what exactly do I want to read then? And then yeah. a few weeks ago, I was up in Edinburgh for a, a book thing and I ended up reading completely. Sometimes you get things that take you by surprise because if you're an instinctive mood reader, I think you also have to be open to having your mood pushed on you. So somebody told yeah. me to read Tari Jones's An American Marriage. And I was just like, oh, that's not the mood I'm in. And I saw, <laughs> And I started to read it and I just couldn't stop reading it. And it was absolutely great. So yeah, I agree with mood reading is the way to go. And then with the occasional like 
hey, you're going to be a this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read this one right now because I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear from you guys. But I feel that whenever I pick a new book to read, it's driven by a really. It's like an. I can't articulate the combination of needs or desires around each book that I choose to read. But it, I just know it is just like I just need to read a book that's like gives me a little bit of something. Yeah, totally. That, yeah. yeah, because it's and a very different thing to obviously like when buying books or you know borrowing mm. from the library or whatever it is to be like I you know I want to read that you read the blurb and you're like I will probably like that book but then when it comes time to be like which one am I actually going to pick up and mm. read there's some it's so weird because there is something in you that just goes reach for that one and you're like yeah. okay yes. <laughs> like, and when, yeah. when we don't yeah, when I like, read everything that I sort of need to read for the podcast uh-huh. I do go and look at my bookshelves and I'm like oh oh and I'll have like a good 15 minutes like if there's not one that I've already had in my mind of like I'm gonna yeah. start that next then I do have a bit of like oh what should I read next like yes. oh do I want some non-fiction do I want fiction what do I feel like no, you just um, like sit there so in your fun. own personal library to like make a yeah. decision uh, <laughs> And it's a really wonderful feeling. I think somebody needs to name that feeling of figuring out which book you're going to read next and kind of gazing at your bookshelves and just that lovely uncertainty, not knowing. It's a great, great feeling. That kind and of anticipation of like, yeah, yeah I think and I'm going to love this book. it needs to be a nice word mm. because I always yes. like that a bit more than if we were to then go to the other side of this, which is like, when you're yeah. scrolling through streaming services trying to pick a movie to watch or something yes. and your dinner's getting cold and you're like, yeah. why can't I make a decision? <laughs> yeah, yes. and you have some, yes, yes, totally. And you have someone why else disagrees you. Why is that a negative experience yes. and who yeah. is a positive one? That's yeah. a really good point. Huh, okay, I'm going to have to think about that because, yeah, that that feels frustrating. I think it might be too with the dinner getting cold. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> just like, yeah. You're like, yeah. why didn't I do this before, damn it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly um but yeah that's it's a lovely feeling and it's got the quality of you know that sundoku do you guys know about the sundoku thing which is a japanese yeah. term for all the all books the... you've bought that you haven't yet read i think oh, yeah. the pile of yeah oh yeah i'm sure i was yeah. like i'm sure i've heard that word before but i um, couldn't think yes yeah. yeah you know we just don't have that um, you know you guys both have jobs and i have a job and we have lives and the idea of more needing more time to read or spending more time reading is a constant for me and also because I'm just like I also have to spend more time writing so I think there's this you know we know that we're not going to read all the books we want to read in our lifetimes and knowing that already is a very bizarre thing yeah (laughs) yeah it's so strange someone said to me the other day that they really wanted to read more and I said you know what I don't think anyone in the entire world is happy with the amount they read (laughs) yeah even even the people who you know, lots of people would consider really prolific readers reading like a hundred books a year or something. Mm-hmm. Even those people want to read want, more yeah. books. They want to read more books. Yeah, exactly. No one is satisfied. <laughs> no one. And there's also the idea of I really love rereading, and I do not do that enough. I do. Ah, uh, rereading. Yeah, I mean, rereading is something I never used to do it, and then because in my brain it was like I must devour you know the sort of certain new books novels yeah. yeah new books a year otherwise I will not be I don't know what I won't be but um, I'll be kicked out of the reading club <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah just just a bad reader but rereading has been fascinating because um taking things slowly and things I read in my 20s going back over them like I read my 20s was the era for reading American male novelists I really went yeah. through Philip Roth and Phil Weller and all that and um occasionally I reread some of these guys I'm just like okay they are like honestly they are prose wise 
extraordinarily brilliant. And um, on a misogyny, misogyny wise, that's a whole other thing. It's a whole other thing. But rereading some of that has made me stop and go much more slowly and do it like sentence by sentence. Okay, I need, you know, back in the day, I was very porous. I took things more slowly. I understood what they were. And it made me think about my own writing and that if I just hoover through a whole load of novels year by year, I'm not actually thinking about the craft of writing. Whereas if I slow down, it doesn't need to be with Philip Roth, whatever. But if I slow down and pick anyone, really, who's a good writer, like Laurie Moore, I love. Um, she's an incredible writer. Or Ashley Le Guin. Um, yeah. Someone called Shirley has it. Yeah, really taken the sentences. Um, I don't know if you guys know Lauren Groff. Uh, she's kind of, she's quite young. She's a wonderful writer. And just the similes and the metaphors and the imagery. Slow, yeah, I love that. And even you know you can do it on a first read as well but there's something about reading with your pencil underlining is the pleasure is it's a glorious pleasure when I allow myself to just stop racing through the books and just yeah, yeah. so I I'm trying to do more of that. that at the end of when we finish this season of better words mm. um I'd like to incorporate like more rereading because I do have a bit of a like a schedule in my mind or not it's not like in a horrible way but in like a terms of I've borrowed these books from the library so you know Mm -hmm. I'll read one of them and then maybe I'll read you know a new book that I've bought um and I'd like to make it that you know in my rotation of books that I'm ticking off I go back and reread some which I don't when we're recording better words because we like to give new recommendations and stuff but there are some you know coming back from overseas as well I've just been reunited with my entire book collection that I left here and it would be really great to reread some of those books especially some of my favorite books um and to see how I feel about them now like five or six years on um and enjoy them again as well I love re-watching tv shows so why don't I re-watch re-watch like because I love re-watching TV shows and being, it is that like comfort blanket of like, oh, my favourite characters and yeah, but we just, yeah. we surround ourselves with new books and I mean, I guess mm. that is our burden as, as book lovers to bear is always having <laughs> new books coming out that sound amazing. <laughs> yeah, you guys have kind of done that to you. Know, you've, yeah. you, know, you do you do have to keep in top of the new books because of what you do. Yeah, so yeah. there is a kind of like a limited amount of time for rereading there. But yeah. I think also I agree with the rereading. It's um the like yeah the comfort this has been such a fun chat about reading we've gone on about reading and choosing books to read and everything for quite some time now but it's but something it's that all lovely. our listeners will relate to so. yeah <laughs> <laughs> thank thank you so much for joining us tonight where can people find and follow you online so they can find me online on instagram where i'm ellie underscore lee underscore writes or they can find me on twitter where i'm underscore ellie lee and it's kind of it. Online. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Um, and we have to thank the team at Quercus as well for yes. um, sending us some copies or supplying us with some electronic copies as well um, of the book. We really enjoyed reading it and we love chatting to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. It was a real pleasure and lovely to meet you both as well. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at Better Words Pod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book loving friend and leave a rating or review. Bye.